Today's reading is from <clears throat> 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. It says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. We've been working through a teaching series titled Un- Unshakable Identity. Unshakable Identity. Now we come to the last characteristic we're looking at through this series. And it, the characteristic is there on your notes. I am, you are unfinished, a work in progress. I am unfinished, a work in progress. You are unfinished, a work in progress. And um, there is a difference. Grab your sermon notes out. Also, you can uh, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. We'll be dissecting that text that was just read. But there is a difference between knowing about God and really knowing God. Does that make sense? You can know a lot about God. You can know a lot about God by reading his word. You can know a lot about uh, his many different attributes and, and still not know God. You can know a lot about morality and what the Bible teaches in, in that area and yet still not know God. There's a difference between knowing about God And truly knowing God, having an intimate relationship with Him, where there's this mutual giving and receiving of love and truth between you and God. One of the marks of truly knowing God is spiritual growth. So so that would give evidence of the fact that you truly know God. The whole book of 2 Peter is all about spiritual growth. And in fact, let me give you kind of the bookends to this uh, short letter by Peter, there's three chapters, and Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge, he uses that word a lot, so knowledge is not knowing about God, it's more than that. You do need to know about God so that you can really know him, but it's got to go beyond just knowledge and information about God. So may grace and peace be multiplied to you in intimacy with God 
and of our Jesus, and of our Jesus, Jesus our Lord. Uh, what he's saying here is that may God's grace and peace grow in you exponentially, spiritual growth. Now, the very last verse of this book, so that was the second verse and the very last verse, kind of showing us that this letter is all about spiritual growth. Second Peter 3.18, this is how he finishes the book. But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So here's my question for you. Are you growing spiritually? Is there evidence in your life that you are experiencing life change? Are you growing in your maturity and intimacy with God? Are you growing up spiritually? I think the best people that I could ask in regards to you would be those that are closest to you. What would they say about your spiritual growth? Would they say, yes, he or she is so much more mature when I, than when I first met them and, and they have an intimacy with God now that it's just, you know, that I even desire, that I want. What would people say? What would those closest to you say? You can't know God, walk with God, enjoy God, and remain the same. He will transform your life. And, and so, are you growing in maturity and intimacy with Christ Jesus? Let me ask you another question here. We'll move from that thought to have you ever heard anyone criticize or judge Christians? <laughs> uh, yes, show of hands. Almost all of us have. Maybe how many would say that you've been criticized? You've been criticized uh, as a Christian. It's like you call yourself a Christian. I've had people say that uh, a few times to me, and, and uh, most of the time it's because they're trying to manipulate me to get me to do what I want, what they want me to do. You call yourself a Christian? How could you treat me like this? Or how could you say this? Or how could you do that? Or any number of things. Had a, uh, a relative not too long ago basically say, Christians are a pathetic mess. Christians are more screwed up than everybody else or anyone else. And he, he used kind of a language and expletives that were not uh, appropriate for me to use here. But, uh, but that's what he was saying. And, and so my response here when someone says that, man, Christians are really jacked up. They're a mess. Here's my response. You only know the half of it. We are much worse than you think, and yet our Father calls us his beloved children. That is amazing. That is out of this world. And so part of my response is to help them to understand that when I call myself a Christian, it is not a claim that I have it all together and that I'm sinless. No, it's actually a claim that I'm sinful in desperate need of a Savior. That's the call of Christianity. That's what he, he has to confront us with our sinfulness, our mess, so that he can redeem us and change us and draw us closer to himself. And so, turn to the first person, uh, the people sitting around you and say this, God is not finished with you just yet. 
God is not finished with you. He's still working in your life. God is not finished with you. And I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. Lewis argues that the reason God tells us not to judge, now by the way, you need to make a distinction between being judgmental and being discerning. The Bible does say that we're to be discerning no uh, right from wrong and to call out wrong in a, in a loving way. But, that, but judgmentalism is totally different, and this is what he's talking about. Lewis argues that the reason God tells us not to judge is that we do not know the raw material that people are struggling with. The world expects all Christians to act equally happy and outgoing, but the fact is that it may be a greater victory for Christian A, who has been trapped by inner demons and psychological complexes to smile, than for Christian B, who has been blessed from birth with a loving family, healthy body, and sound finances to donate $5,000 to charity. We don't know the raw material that that person struggles with. So we've got to be careful, we've got to be patient, we've got to encourage one another. So four questions we're looking at, I believe this text answers for us. Here's the first one is what, what do we need to grow spiritually? Second question, why do we need to continually grow spiritually? Third question, what keeps us from growing spiritually? You might be surprised by the answer there. And then what will be the result of our spiritual growth? That's where we're headed. Let's take that first question. What do we need to grow spiritually? This is found in our text, verses three through seven. And so what do we need? We need God's power, we need God's promises, and we need our perseverance. Let's start with God's power. This verse three, it's based on verse three, is absolutely a beautiful, wonderful verse. This is a verse I memorized years ago. I memorized it from the NIV, New International Version, and it's just a beautiful verse. Basically, it says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and goodness. That's beautiful. His divine power, yes, his divine power has done what? It gives us everything we need, everything. You have everything you need through his divine power working in your life is what uh, Peter is saying. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge, there's that word again, knowledge, intimacy, intimacy with God who's called us by his glory and goodness. And we responded to that call by putting our faith in Christ Jesus and, and so uh, we have his power. And Romans 8.11 says the spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. So you have resurrection power. Now, Simon Peter was an eyewitness of Christ Jesus. Can you imagine what that would have been like to be an eyewitness of Christ Jesus. In fact, a few verses down from where we're studying here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he actually says this to his audience, and he's speaking this to us. He says this, these were not cunningly devised fables that we came up with in, in showing you and revealing to you the, the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I mean, he was an eyewitness 
of the beauty and the glory of Christ Jesus, that this man, Christ Jesus, is God in the flesh, and he came to redeem us and to love us and to seek us out and draw us into a relationship with, with him and the Father. And so he had a front row seat of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And, and this was no doubt life-changing. But Peter is saying something quite stunning here in verse 3. He says, his divine power has given us. Who's the us? That's us. Everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith in Christ. He says, his divine power has given us us, everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us by his glory and goodness. And so what he's saying here is that your encounter with Christ can be as life-changing as mine was. And so what this tells us here is that as a Christian, there are no excuses for not having a changed life. As I stated, you can't know God and walk with him and love him and enjoy his love for you with, and, and leave you the same. You will not be the same. You will be a different person. And that's what he's saying. His divine power is working in you. And, and so what I would encourage you to always keep in mind, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're struggling, there is no hurt, no hurt that can't be healed. There is no habit that can't be broken. There is no hang-up that can't be overcome. You have his divine power working in you and through you and for you. And so, we got God's power. That's what we need for life change. We also have God's promises. That's the next verse. This next verse, I haven't memorized it, but it's worth memorizing. I think I'm going to put it on my list of verses to memorize. It's absolutely beautiful. It's another beautiful verse. Verse 4, he says, by which he has promised to us his precious and very great promises. I love how he describes God's promises. They're, they're precious. They're great worth and value. And they're very great, they're magnificent. In fact, uh, New American Standard calls them magnificent promises. Notice this, what, are, what do his promises do? So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. There's God's power. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he's talking about life change here in our life. So the power of sin and suffering that we all face, we all struggle with, the power of sin and suffering is overcome by the power of God's promises. Now, as, as I've looked at this and I've understood God's promises and, and I, I love his promises towards us, that there are, God has a promise for every one of your needs. That's what you always need to keep in mind. Whatever you're struggling with, there's a promise in the Bible that addresses that for you. Now, how many promises in the Bible would you say pertain to you? How many do you think? Turn to the person next to you and see if they can come up with a kind of guess what, how many promises are in the Bible in regards to us. Real quick, do that. So what do you guys, uh, yeah, all of them, I like it. So how many do you think? You think there's 100? 
That would be a lot, wouldn't it? A hundred promises in regards to me? That sounds like it'd probably cover all of my needs. <laughs> How many would think maybe more like four or five hundred? Four or five hundred? Okay, that's, good. that's a good guess. How about some of you saying no higher? How about a thousand? Thousand? How about two thousand? How about this? According to one account, there are 3,573 promises in the Bible. Yes. Those are promises to us, for us. That is amazing. He covers every base for us. He loves us. And so there are thousands of promises. I think it's safe to say there are thousands of promises for you in God's word. I mean, take for instance uh, this series we are finishing up this weekend. Every week we were showing to you a promise of God about uh, your character, about uh, your identity and this unshakable identity. And as we've said over and over through this series, our unshakable identity is not something we achieve but it's something we receive. It's ours. It's been promised to us. So we've got to learn to live in the reality of it. So I think it'd be good for us to kind of go through and kind of review where we've been in this series. This is week number 10. But so we talked about how I am a new creation, a brand new life. I have a brand new life. That's being born again. And so by being born again, we have a new potential, new privileges, new promises. Uh, new power working in our lives. That was Easter weekend when we kicked the series off. And then the second week, we talked about how I am free, redeemed by the Son. And then the next one was, I am adopted, beloved by the Father. I am alive, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I am a worshiper shining brightly in darkness. I am a member connected to the church. I am a masterpiece created for good works. I am secure, never forsaken. You remember that one a couple weeks ago? That's, that was a good one. That was absolutely a good one based on Hebrews 13, 5, and 6. And the one that followed that was last weekend. I am a citizen longing for home. And now this weekend, I am unfinished, a work in progress. And so we got God's power. We got God's promises, many promises. By the way, you need to familiarize yourself with his promises, and particularly to the areas of your life where you must struggle. And so you need to know his promises. And so we need God's power and God's promises, but we also need perseverance. That's your next fill in the blank. That's based on verses five through seven. Listen to what he says. For this very reason, so he's already talked about God's power and his promises, and then he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Make every effort. He's talking about persevere. So what does that mean to make every effort? Well, it means don't waste a second of your life to build on what you have been given in God's power and God's promises. So here's what he's saying. You must make every effort to apply the power and the promises promises of God specifically to the areas of your life where you struggle most. Where do you struggle most? What, What are you battling in thoughts, in words, in deeds, in motives? Are you are you in touch with that? 
And how does the Bible, God's power and promises, apply to that specific area of your life? Listen to me, you don't need to be inordinately anxious or angry or depressed. You don't need to feel hopeless or helpless. God gives us promises specifically for our life. We have have his divine power and his thousands of promises to help us, but we've got to persevere in those and begin to apply them specifically to where our hearts are, are most restless and where we're struggling the most. And so, when people, uh, oh, there's a verse, couple verses here that go along with that, that idea, is that Philippians 2, 12 through 13, maybe you're familiar with it, this is part of God's promises to us, and it says this, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Now, he's talking to Christians, and so he's not telling them, work for your salvation. The Bible never says that. You don't work for your salvation. These folks have salvation. You and I have salvation by grace through faith in Christ. So he's saying, saying, work out. You have it. Work it out into the specific areas of your life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That gives that idea of make every effort. Don't miss this. Live this out. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you. Whether you realize it or not, God is working in you to will and to act according according to his good pleasure. So will, yeah, he, he changes our heart. He changes our desires. And to act, yeah, he gives us the ability. To, to behave and to respond to life in such a way that it brings honor and praise to him. And so, when people are born again, they move from a mechanical growth, our perseverance alone, to an organic growth, which is God's power, God's promises, and our perseverance. So if you're just using your own perseverance alone to, to experience life change, that's mechanical growth, and it's not going to last. But the organic growth that God does from the inside out is based on his power and his promises to us. But we've got to persevere in those things. So it is, it's really the difference between behavioral modification and heart transformation. Behavioral modification is uh, mechanical growth. Heart transformation is organic growth. And the Christian life is not a morally restrained will. That's mechanical growth. It's a supernaturally transformed heart through God's power and his promises. And yet we have to persevere. We have to persevere. We have to add to our faith, as he says. Persevere in this. Make every effort to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And he goes through this list. And so let's, let me just go through three of the items on that list. And so this is what should be happening in your life if you're truly walking with Christ. If you're in vital union and communion with Christ, this is what will happen is what he says. But we have to make every effort to, to experience this. Let's take, for instance, love. Are you becoming a more loving person than what you were maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? Now, if you're only 20 years old, well... 
that would be an easy one. You probably are more loving. And, uh, but, but I mean, if, if you've walked with Christ, even for a few years, if you've walked with Christ, are you becoming a more loving person? And in fact, what should be happening is that you begin to love people you could never love before. Is that happening in your life? How about steadfastness? If steadfastness is, is a part of a character quality that you have as you're growing, then you begin to face difficulties unlike you ever have before. So, so when, when circumstances or things or people kind of get under your, your nerves, kind of bother you, how do you respond? Do you see that you are more patient and kind in your response to the stress of traffic or long lines or what, how people treat you? Is there life change in you? If you're walking with Christ, there will be. And you will persevere through those hard times. And then uh, another one here he uses is virtue. And what happens is that in time you begin to have a virtue. Virtue has to do with just really good behavior and uh, good works. And so you begin to have a virtue from inside out, motivated out of love versus outside in, motivated by pride and fear. See, there's a difference between common virtue. Common virtue is something that anybody and everybody can have, and we applaud that. We applaud people that do really good things, and, and yet at the same time, the Bible really makes a, a clear distinction that common virtue is, is more of a mechanical growth based on fear and pride. It's extrinsic motivation, fear and pride, and, and yet true virtue True virtue is motivated out of a heart that is smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's inside out. The good behavior that you have, the good deeds that you perform, coming from an overflow of his love for you and all that you're experiencing in him. And so... This whole idea of, of perseverance and spiritual growth, there is no magic pill in spiritual growth. I mean, I wish I could have you guys come up here and click your heels three times and say there's no place like home, and I wave a magic wand, and you're just like, oh, instantly, you have a great marriage now, and you're handling your finances with wisdom and any number of things, but it doesn't work that way. And, and part of my background, I love my background. I came from a Pentecostal charismatic background. The only thing I, that bothered me about that uh, was that I would watch couples who are struggling in their marriage relationship and they would come forward for prayer. And it was almost as if they had this mindset that if I could just get zapped, my marriage is going to be better. Well, no. Guess what? You need to persevere and you need to learn conflict resolution skills and communication skills and all of that. And so, yeah, there's no doubt about it. I love praying with people and, and so that they can have an encounter with Christ and know him, but that just launches you onto this path of spiritual maturity and growth, and there are some things that you need to do. You need to persevere in those things. And, and so it's, there's no magic pill in spiritual growth. The process of spiritual growth is gradual, needs God's power, God's promises, and our perseverance. So here's the next question. Why do we need to continue to grow spiritually? Because it will keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful. Those are the next two fill-in-the-blanks on your notes, and that's based on verse 8 of our text. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, notice that, spiritual growth, so if these qualities are yours and increasing, they should be increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge, there's that word again, knowledge, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take the word ineffective. So, when I first read that, I just thought, yeah, of course. If you're not growing spiritually, you're going to be ineffective. You're not going to have much of an impact in other people's lives. But actually, that's not what that word means, though that's true. But that word actually means, the Greek means this. You will be lazy, shunning the labor which one ought to perform. So, for, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if they're not yours and increasing, you're going to be ineffective. You're, gonna, you're showing that you are lazy, shunning the labor which one ought to perform. Let me read to you some verses from 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. I think it's a great cross-reference for understanding here. And... Uh, Corinth had athletic games that were similar to our Olympic games. And so that's what Paul is referring to here. And he's comparing uh, athletes to us as Christians. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So if you're to watch an athlete, a world-class athlete, seven days a week, I'll guarantee you it's all about diet, rest, exercise. They have a a training program, and they don't let up on that if they're going to perform at that high level, and that's what he's saying. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I'm gonna practice what I preach. And by the way, I'm not just going through the motions when I read the Bible and when I pray and when I come to church. It's not another box to check off. No. No, I'm desperate to encounter him and to know him, to know his power and his promises as I apply those specifically to the areas of my life where I'm in most need. Otherwise, I will be disqualified. I don't want to disqualify myself. So imagine a world-class athlete only training once a week, like on Sunday. Ah, I think I'll work out today. And the other six days, they don't do anything. That's not going to happen. But I think you get my point. If you're a Christian, and the only time that you do any kind of training is on Sunday... You're not going to survive. You're going to be taken out by the sin and suffering of our world. I mean, I'm so desperate for Christ and I so long for him and love him is that every morning it's the first thing I do. I, I have to spend time with him. I want to spend time with him. I'm desperate to spend time with him, to, inter, uh, to interact with him, to know him, to love him, to receive his love, to read his word, to meditate on it. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I can't help but do that. I've got to do that. And I believe that's healthy. I do it seven days a week. I did it this morning before I came in here. I spent time with the Lord. I talked to him. I interacted with him. I prayed. I studied his word. And so you need to do that. I I saw an interview a few years ago. It was uh, 
it was, it was on Tom Brady, and the guy was actually talking about Tom Brady, and whether you like him or, or don't, just listen to this, okay? But, as <laughs> I know some people don't like him. You either like him or you don't like him, okay? And so, uh, but Tom Brady, it was interesting, and, and by the way, how old is he, and he's still playing in the NFL? He's 42 years old, and that's pretty amazing. But it's because of a number of things, not only DNA, <laughs> He's got good DNA, but it's also uh, a, a, a desire to perform at that level and training. He was out with some friends. I don't know where they were, but they were inviting him to indulge himself in, in food and drink. And he goes, no, no, I can't. I'm training. And they go, we're not even in season right now. This is between the, the seasons. And he said, well, I'm, I'm training. I'm still training. I train year-round. And I, I, I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty honorable that he loves that sport so much that he's going to do that. And, and that's the reason, I think, for his longevity and his perseverance. And, and now I'm going to be a fan of Tampa Bay Buccaneers, okay? Because that's the team that he got uh, put on. He, he got picked up by. So I'll be a, a fair-weather uh, fan and jump on the bandwagon there. And so it's, it's just, uh, it's pretty interesting. You're going to be ineffective. Now, there's a difference between, being, uh, between training and trying, trying and training. You could say to me, hey, Pastor Ray, I'm going to go rim to rim on the Grand Canyon. I'm going to hike it. And I'm gonna, first thing I'm going to say is, have you trained? I mean, you could try all you want to, but if, if you're just doing it out of trying hard rather than actually training, then you better make sure that you have a helicopter on speed dial down there, okay? Because you're going to need it. And the same thing goes for the Christian life. You know, you're going to leave here and probably feel inspired. I'm going to be more disciplined in my, my spiritual disciplines, my prayer and Bible study and prayer, and that's, that's great. But you have to train. You have to continue to train. You have to do those things, even if they're small. I mean, you don't uh, prepare for going rim to rim on the Grand Canyon by going out and running a marathon, okay? You start just by taking a lap around the block. And little by little, as you do that spiritually, you begin to have encounters with Christ and you begin to know his word and it becomes a part of your life and it begins to transform you and you begin to develop endurance and perseverance and virtue, and love, and, and all of the characteristics that he's describing here. And so he says you will be ineffective if these characteristics, these, these qualities are not increasing in you, and you'll be unfruitful. The Greek here means barren, not yielding what it ought to yield. So now listen to me. An undisciplined life spiritually will always, always cost you more than a spiritual disciplined life. Does that make sense? It's going to cost you. If you don't discipline yourself spiritually, if you're not regularly coming to church, if you're not regularly connecting with other Christians, if you're not regularly reading God's Word, if you're not regularly spending time interacting with God, it's going to cost you. It will cost you maturity and intimacy with God. It will cost you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. It will cost you. 
So if we don't persevere in God's power and promises, we will be ineffective and unfruitful. But what keeps us from growing, from growing spiritually? It's your next fill in the blank on your notes, gospel amnesia. That's our big problem. That will stunt your growth, forgetting your justification in Christ. That's based on verse 9. Listen to what he says. For whoever lacks these qualities, so if you're not spiritually growing and maturing, whoever lacks these qualities is, not, is, is so nearsighted, is so nearsighted that he is blind. You guys know what it means to be nearsighted? Anybody here nearsighted? Okay, you can only see those things up close, like right in front of you. And so you, you are so nearsighted that you are blind. You don't see where you've come from and you don't know where God is leading you. You're living for the here and now would be one idea of being nearsighted. Or also it would just be you're just so self-focused. You need to be more God-focused. You need to think about where God has led you from, what you have in him, and where he's leading you. You need to be thinking. You need to have vision for your life. Vision is a picture of the future that produces passion within us. And so when you have that passion, oh my goodness, you want to practice the spiritual disciplines. You want to grow in your relationship with Christ. It's just, it's just normal. And so gospel amnesia. So what does it mean to remember? So if we have forgotten that we have, that we, that he was cleansed from his former sins, justification. So to remember is to have a life-controlling consciousness of something. It is to bring something you know in your mind down into the center of your consciousness so that it dominates your behavior. And so uh, how do you do that? Not by trying but by training. You've got to train towards that. And, uh, and that's through spiritual disciplines. And so to the degree that we live in the reality of our justification, this is what he's saying, to the degree we live in the reality of our justification, our imputed righteousness, is to the degree that we will experience sanctification, imparted righteousness. So imputed righteousness is what we have. He's declared that we are righteous because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So we stand perfect before God, and yet, practically, we're not. But the only way you're going to get to be more practically holy and like Christ is to remember your justification. That's what he's saying here. All of our problems will go back to the root, which is our justification. If you're struggling with sanctification, struggling with loving someone that's a bit unlovable, and you're struggling with perseverance over circumstances and difficulties of life, you go back to what you have in him, your justification. That's what he's saying, and you want to have that at the center of your life. This needs to be a life-controlling consciousness of the truths of what you have in Christ Jesus. It's also known as positional righteousness and practical righteousness. I was in my devotions this morning, I was reading and I came across a quote that I think helps us to understand this justification. The Son of God bore in his body all my punishment, all my guilt, all my condemnation, all my blame, all my fault, all my corruption so that I might stand before a great and holy God Forgiven, reconciled, justified, accepted, and the beneficiary of unspeakable promises of pleasure forever and ever at his right hand. That's ours right now. It's ours right now. 
And so you go back to your justification. There's something that you're missing in your justification to, to begin to live it out, live the gospel out in all the details of, of your life. So let me share with you a story that I think helps to explain this. It's a, it's a life change story that I've heard repeatedly here at Desert Breeze over the last 30 years. It's the story of a woman who told her pastor that she felt like she was finally understanding the gospel. It was a very gospel-centered church, and she said, okay, I'm finally understanding the gospel. By the way, which I hear that also here at Desert Breeze, where it takes about, and I've noticed it takes about six months to a year of just a pounding of the gospel. And we pound the gospel, don't we? We do every weekend, every week, and, and sometimes people will say, well, you know, why do you keep repeating yourself and why do you do that? It's because, because you don't get it and neither do I. Because you, you, you have gospel amnesia. And so we need to hear it daily. I want to hear it daily. Just like I want to hear daily my wife tell me that she loves me. I don't say, okay, you've already told me that a long time ago. I'm good. <laughs> that would be weird, wouldn't it? No, tell me. Hey, I love you. Yeah. Thank you. I love you too. And so the gospel, when we hear the gospel, this is what you should hear. I love you. I've pursued you. I'm going to take care of you. I've got you covered. You have a right relationship with me because of what I've done for you on the cross. See, that's the gospel. It's, it's, it's his love. He's reaching out to us in love. And so she said, hey, I'm finally beginning to understand the gospel. And she went on and said that in Christ Jesus, in spite of my sins and flaws, I am loved. And when the Father sees me in Christ, he sees something beautiful. And she goes on and says, because recently I was with my sister-in-law, and I hate my sister-in-law. I am always cold and hateful toward her because she always tears me down in front of my in-laws. And she has really hurt my relationship with my father and mother-in-law. But it wasn't that long ago that I was with my sister-in-law, and as she was being as she usually is, I suddenly said to myself, wait a minute, if I'm really beautiful to the father, it doesn't matter what she says or does. She can't take my true identity in Christ. What happened? What happened to her? She remembered her justification in Christ. And, and so, as I was thinking about this, I always want to be practical and say, okay, what does that look like in my life and, and how does that play itself out? I've got 10 items here. Let me just run through them. I'm going to go at a very rapid rate, but I want you to hear this. When you have a life-controlling consciousness of your justification in Christ, that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, this is what will happen. You will never have to do things to win God's favor because you already have it in Christ. You never have to fear anyone or anything because God is for you. You never have to fear the disapproval of others because you have God's approval. You never have to prove yourself because you are already proven in Christ. You never have to fear losing earthly joys because you have an eternal joy in Christ. You never have to hide your sin because you have God's forgiveness and cleansing. You never have to cower in shame because you have a new identity in Christ. You never have to pretend that you are better than you are because you have all of the acceptance, security, significance you'll ever need in Christ. You never have to rationalize or excuse or defend or shift the blame because Jesus took 
our blame and shame on the cross. You never have to fear being known or exposed because the only eyes in the universe that matter sees you to the bottom and loves you to the skies. That's our justification that transforms us as we live that out. So God's power and promises and our perseverance, that's what we need for life change. And if we don't have those things in our life, we will be ineffective and unfruitful. And one of the reasons for our lack of life change is gospel amnesia. What will be the results of spiritual growth? Here's the Next, fill in the blank on your notes. It will confirm your calling and election. That's what he says in verse 10a. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So your spiritual growth will validate and give evidence that you have a real faith. You have a real faith. So faith is the root of our salvation. Life change is the fruit of our salvation. Don't confuse those. Don't mix those up. So the root is faith in Christ. And the fruit would be life change. And that confirms your calling and election. Here's the next one. You will never fatally fall. That sounds weird, huh? But verse 10b, he says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It almost sounds like he says, you'll never fall. And that's not true. We know that based on the series we just went through, First John, where he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're going to always struggle with sin. We're going to always struggle with sin. But the word never fall literally means in the Greek to fall into misery and become wretched. And, and you will fall, but you won't fatally fall. You're not going to fall away from Christ. If you are growing and maturing and, and you're applying his power and promises and you're persevering in these things. Proverbs 24, 16, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. And so when I was on the fire department, we would run quite a number of calls on this. You're probably familiar with this. Help I've fallen and I, okay, you've seen the commercial. And that was very common. That was very common. Help, I've fallen, I can't get up. There are going to be times in your life where you're going to fall and you can't get up and you need assistance to get back up. That's why it tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, two are better than one because if one falls, the other can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. So you're going to fall, you're not going to fatally fall, but you need to surround yourself with good Christian friends and family so that they're there for you because we need each other in all of this. And so no fall is ever fatal if you will repent and believe in Christ. Okay, you screwed up. You have a habit that you're trying to break. You did real well for a while, and now you've messed up. Repent and believe. Get back up. Let's go. Keep going. Keep going. Okay, I, I really messed up in this relationship. I said some unkind things. Hey, it's not fatal. Get back up. Come on. Come on. Repent and believe. Go and apologize. Make things right. No fall is fatal if you will repent and believe in Christ. Here's the last one. You will hear from Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. In the end, when you stand before God, you will hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. 
For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's verse 11, the last verse in our text. Here's the worst words you could ever hear from Jesus. And everyone will stand before Jesus in a given account. Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. But here's the worst words you could ever hear from him. Depart from me, I don't know you. And there will be people that claim to be Christian that will hear that because they don't have true faith, nor do they have the life change that follows that. The best words that you could ever hear are these, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on, join me for all eternity. The great pleasures that we have in him. Here's what will heal you of your forgetting. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? And on the cross, Jesus Christ was cosmically forgotten in our place so that God will never, ever, ever forget you. We deserve to be forgotten by God because we have forgotten God. Jesus Christ got what we deserve so that the Father will never, ever, ever forget us. Isaiah 49, 15 through 16, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, this is God speaking to us. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. So look at the hands, the palms of Jesus' hands. What do you see? Nail scars for you and I. Ruth Graham's gravestone reads this. Billy Graham's wife, this is what she had put on her gravestone. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. Isn't that sweet? That's right. He will continue to work on us until he takes us home. He's not finished with you yet. He's not finished with you yet. He's still working. Let him do his work in your life. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we love you. Father God, we are, we are sure of this, that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. Through your power and promises, may we persevere in our faith, growing spiritually every day so that we will not be ineffective or unfruitful. May the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf be at the center at the center of our consciousness so that it dominates our behavior through the discipline of, of worship and prayer and Bible study. And as we continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of, of Christ Jesus, may it confirm our calling and election, keep us from fatally falling, and may we hear from you at the end of our lives, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray these things in your son's glorious name. And everyone said... Amen. Hey, next weekend we kick off a brand new teaching series. We're going to spend the summer months in the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always is what the, the title of it. So we're going to, with, in light of just the craziness that we've experienced here in 2020, we're going to talk about rejoicing in the Lord. What does that mean even in the midst of crazy circumstances? And so we're going to talk about next week how to rejoice in all circumstances, how we can find joy in all circumstances. Love you guys. Have a great weekend.